Blog Talk Radio. Live from Southern California and broadcasting worldwide on Wealth Radio. A tax lawyer prescribing a dose of truth for entrepreneurs. A voice of common sense for the small business owner. And don't get him started on saving taxes. This is the Mark Kohler Show. Mark Kohler Show. Kohler Show. Welcome, everybody, to today's show. My name is Mark Kohler with my co-host, Matt Sorensen. Excited to be here with you on what is the National Small Business Week of 2015. Matt, are you celebrating, Matt? I don't I don't know if you've got a lot going on with your national small business. Oh, yeah. We're, you know, we're really celebrating over here by... Um, just working, you know. That's what how business owners celebrate. I mean, <laughs> do you put a tree up or something? I don't know. What do you do? You light a candle? Yeah. Yeah. Um, light some fireworks, maybe? Jeez. Yeah. I, you know, we haven't done anything in particular here, but uh, apparently it is the National Small Business Week. So everybody, you know, let your hair down this week. Uh Maybe we should have casual Thursday and casual Friday around here. We'll, we'll get, we're going to yeah, get crazy. Go crazy. It's, it's gonna get, yeah. Yeah, it's going to get out of control. But we should also uh, say uh, happy Cinco de Mayo uh, for all of those out there that uh, are celebrating this awesome holiday. It's I, I live here in Southern California. Matt's there in Phoenix, Arizona. So there's there's no lack, lack of hoopla going around our area, is there? No. Well, yeah, you know, they're even celebrating it in the Utah office apparently right now. So I feel a little left out there. But uh, – it's like they're like, oh, we're getting we're getting ready for a single to mile party. I'm like, you're having one? Oh, I feel a little left out. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> now I don't want to offend anyone with uh, uh, Mexican heritage at all, but uh, I am absolutely swamped. So I know this sounds almost terrible to say, but I will be celebrating by running to Taco Bell at lunch and uh, <laughs> helping Pepsi Inc. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's all I can do. I just, we're, I don't have anything planned, Matt. That's it. So. Yeah, you know, it's a, that's an acceptable, you know, thing to do today. That's okay. You get a pass. That's all. It's all I can offer. But I, uh, no, I, I love it. My, uh, I've got a whole side of my our family that uh, that's uh, from Mexico, and we just love that heritage and uh, love to go to Mexico. And so, no, great holiday. So lots of fun. So. Um, Gosh, Matt, we got a great. This is, okay, so now I'm going to let Matt kind of des- describe this because I will inevitably, um, you know, screw this up. But we are in transition, and I know that many of you that are listening to this on podcast will be noticing this transformation because we are slowly evolving to the new refreshing radio show that we're going to be. We're just weeks away from announcing, and so we're testing some kind of. I, I guess show formats. Is that a good way of saying it? I mean, what are we trying to accomplish here? This is, you know, this is this yeah. This easy. Is, it might be. It's kind of like preseason, you know. Uh, <laughs> try, 
trying to get the right team on the field, you know, see what, what uh, formations we should be putting in. I don't know. Um, just taking a little page out of the tax and legal playbook there. Um, also, they yeah. on Amazon right now. No, thank, um, gosh, thank you, Matt. <laughs> you're welcome. Just a little shameless plug for you. But, uh, yeah. yeah, we're trying to, like, test some things out, see what formats work. And um, we love doing open forum today, and we're going to try a little format of talking about a topic Mark and I think is really important for each of you as listeners, as being small business owners, entrepreneurs, real estate investors. We're talking about writing winning contracts today and then also do some open forum, take some questions. We always get lots of response on open forum and more questions than we have time to answer. So, um, And we always get a lot of great feedback from it. So we're going to try that format today. And um, I think it's going to, you know, I think it's going to be a good time. We'll, we'll have to see yeah, and we're anxious for your feedback. We want to uh, thank all of those that listen to the show every week, and uh, I know many of you religiously catch the podcast on your commute, so we want to tell you thank you. We're always looking uh, to for more information that we can provide you to help you uh, succeed in your effort to live your American dream. Everybody's dream is a little different, so we want to we want to help you as best we can and provide some great content. So. Well, as usual, now, so here's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to hit our, our tax and legal tips and uh, try to share something new and refreshing for everybody. Um, talk, uh, maybe take a few open forum questions, and then we want to talk about contracts today, the importance of contracts and how uh, you can screw up a contract or you could build it for success. It's just, it's just not avoiding a lawsuit. There's a lot more to a contract than just avoiding a mess. It's making it a, a winning proposition for all the parties. So we're going to talk about that. And I've already got a bunch of questions emailed in for our, from our listeners. So we hope to hit some of those for, for, uh, for those of you that have already contacted us. But we do accept uh, and love live callers, so you always get priority. And if anybody would like to call in during the show, it's uh, 646-200. 4285. That's 646-200-4285. We promise not to embarrass you or humiliate you in any way, shape, or form. All we need is your first name and a really cool tax or legal question that's not about your specific grandma's situation. Something that you know you think all of us could learn from. So please throw out a question. We'd love to use it here on the show. So uh, that's our. Yeah, we're just going to go uh, for it. Yeah. Yeah, and feel free to email me as well. You can email Mark at Mark's at Mark J. Kohler, also Matt at KKOSLawyers.com. So um, we'll filter through those questions and try and um, answer them as you can. And as it happens, you know, the last 10 minutes, everybody's, oh, they're not getting my questions. People start calling in. So call in early. We do love having uh, live callers here. So let me just point out a couple of events that are coming up, though, um, and some important deadlines. Uh, one is the uh, deadline that was in the newsletter I just want to make sure everyone's aware of is the tax return for IRAs, if you have an IRA that needs to file a tax return that's for UBIT or UDFI tax purposes, this form's called a 990T, that return deadline is April 15th. There's a little, little correction from the newsletter, but just correction on that, that the deadline is April 15th, which is passed. Um, there's an extension you could have obtained to file it. We can even try and get it now late, but you do have an opportunity to file an extension, uh, which can take it out till July. But um, just keep in mind that um, tax deadline is around. It's usually involved if you're self-directing your IRA and you run into one of those taxes, which doesn't apply all the time, but there are some of you who may need to be aware of that deadline. You know, great comment. And 
Um, also, as Matt brings up the newsletter with that uh, typo, which I take uh, full responsibility for, I uh, <laughs> should have double-checked that. Oh, boy. It's a late night last night getting our blog articles out in our newsletter. Um, there's also some other great articles to look at. I love, um, Matt, what you wrote about, the executor or trustee role. Boy, yeah, just what a huge burden some people get thrown in their laps. Yeah, you know, I this is a question I get from random people. You know, I, I've helped a lot of clients probate estates over the years and or administer a trust as, as you know, that those situations have arisen. But then I always get family members, neighbors, you know, I was named the executor of my brother's estate or my parents' estate or trustee, you know, what do I do? And so um, I put together a five-point list of what you need to know and understand in order to properly handle the estate. So, um, I think it's a pretty comprehensive list. It was way longer than I thought. I was like, I'll just crank this article out in an hour. I was like done in about three hours. So um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not verbose. I did kind of cut it down and get to five key points to make sure you're aware of. But uh, really helpful, I think. And this is some, you know, a lot of us unfortunately get the responsibility to do. And it's something that's important to um, take on as that role. We all need someone to do it for us at some point. And you may be called upon by a family member or loved one to do it as well. and um, so, But you do have some responsibilities, and there's a little bit of education involved in the process, so check out that article. Yeah, I, I thought it was excellent. And it is, it's a very, very emotional time. I've had um, some conversations with just clients this last week with uh, the passing of loved ones, and uh, they're generally frantic, and it's, it's hard to think straight when you've lost a loved one. And uh, yeah. I think Matt's article is a great one to forward to friends and family. Uh, mm -hmm. If they're, you know, is a is a great starting point. Um, now, on a lighter note, thank you, Matt, for bringing that up. <laughs> but on a lighter note, um, we have. I wrote an article on strategic planning, and I am such a fan of, of carrying around your strategic plan. In fact, this morning I pulled mine out, took some notes in it, in a staff meeting, and I. I just love it. Uh, and so I write an article on how to build a strategic plan. I don't care if you've been in business three months or 30 years. This is a an excellent way to control your business rather than letting it control you. So check out that article. Uh, it's a it's a it's a great one. And there's I I think a lot there that um, many people overlook when when handling their business. Whenever Matt and I get together, we pull out our little strategic plan diaries and we mm -hmm. make notes and we and it's so fun. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's the best part of running a business, making those plans and holding yourself accountable to it as well. Yeah. Um, in the newsletter, some good videos. I shot a video uh, this last week. It's in it's going to be on entrepreneur.com, if not already today. It's uh, the four asset the four asset protection principles you need to know. So just get started. Just four asset protection principles. It's a two to three minute video. It's free. Um, of course, it's on YouTube. Please get to my YouTube channel uh, and uh, follow, subscribe, whatever you call it, and watch that. Give it a little like. I'd really appreciate it. Share it. It's a great little video on some basic asset protection. Well, okay, so with that said, there's so much in the newsletter. We, we don't need to read it for you. That's why we email it to you. But we do have a special guest on the line we want to bring out. He's highlighted in the newsletter. He has been the last couple weeks uh, with a workshop that's coming up. And we, we love this guy. His name's Randy Lubke, 
he's a licensed financial advisor, loan officer. I mean, he's got more broker, realtor, everything. He's got more letters behind his name than Matt and I combined. And what he's really um, specialized in in the last few years that's just phenomenal is that of um, planning around Social Security and Social Security elections you can make in 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 the in the big picture of your retirement planning there's a lot of tricks there and uh so we were wanting to bring out randy see if he'd share a couple tips with us and he's got a workshop four different workshops in the next couple weeks uh that any of you uh may want to try to attend i think they're going to be fantastic so uh randy welcome to the show hey mr kohler how are you doing this morning Good, and, and you may have just jumped on and hearing my voice only, but we've got the infamous Matt Sorensen here with us too, co-hosting now. You know, this is oh, it, it's good not morning just to you too, show. Matt. That's is, right. is, <laughs> well, good morning. So, you know, Mark requires a tip when you come on, so I was anxious to get a tip or two here because I'm always struggling with some of these planning topics. So, uh, what do you got for us? And tell us about your event as well. Okay. Well, you know what? I was listening. Actually, I was listening for the last couple minutes. And 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 Matt, are you are you in Arizona right now, or are you in Orange County? Oh no, I'm I'm in Arizona. I'm you know, beautiful Phoenix, Arizona. <sighs> this time of year, it really is wonderful. It really, really <laughs> is. Yeah. <clears throat> so so I'm going to give you a tip on Social Security, and uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the workshops, which are 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 not about Social Security. They're about uh, IRA planning. So uh, I'll ask you guys, do you want to have a, a, a higher rate planning tip or do you want a Social Security tip? Which one's better? Which tip is better? Give me the better one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, Let me, let, let's talk about a Social like Security tip. To, that's like when I go to a, a restaurant and they're like, I'm like, what's the best thing on your menu? It's like, well, I don't know. Do you like fish or do you like steak? Uh, which one's better? I don't know. I like surf and turf. Let's talk about Social Security. And I want to talk about Social Security and the idea of a self-employed uh, couple where we have you know, husband and wife or, or you know, two spouses working for the same business. Uh, because what's, what's interesting to, uh, to understand about Social Security, of course, is that a spousal, uh, there's always a spousal benefit. And... Uh, depending on who has paid in the most and has the largest record for Social Security, uh, that's going to determine what that spousal benefit in is going to be. So what I've discovered is that many times, especially as people are approaching that, uh, that age where they're going to start collecting Social Security benefits, that many times it doesn't make any sense to have the working spouse pay into Social Security at all during the last maybe five years or so. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Well, I, mm-hmm. I, this is the, the part that fascinates me, Mark here, and, and why I bring up uh, your Social Security experience, because I learn something new every time you talk about Social Security. I think, I, and if I could just say this quickly for many of our listeners, if you're like me, you think, oh, I turned 59 and a half, I just start getting Social Security. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's a lot of things you can do in the five to ten years before you retire, and there's special elections you can make when you turn a certain age. Social Security is a lot more complex, and there can be a bigger benefit for you if you approach it strategically. So I guess, Randy, in answer to your question, I, I, I've heard that you could really trim down the amount you pay in Social Security in the years before you're eligible. But the problem is, is we've got this this – 
payroll requirement that you do take payroll if you're an entrepreneur or you're paying self-employment tax. So it's a little hard to play games with that. What do you suggest? I, I, I'm open to, to, to this because I, I really want to keep that Social Security tax to a minimum whenever I can for my clients. Yeah, so I, I guess there's a lot of different ways to look at it. But let's just assume for the moment that the spousal benefit uh, is is going to be higher than the uh, other spouse's actual benefit under their own earnings record. So just kind of start with that premise. In other words, the uh, the mm-hmm. uh, the earning uh, benefit that that the primary wage earner is going to make will provide a bigger benefit than than any additional contributions that the uh, the spouse would make if 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 he or she continued to contribute. So you could stop making that contribution because it's not going to grow, right? It's not going to okay, it's okay. not going to benefit. Now, now, Randy, this is where I just got confused. So you weren't saying originally, I understood you to say that you take, you trim down or quit paying into the system for the primary wage earner or the owner of the business. You weren't saying that. You're saying the spouse that may be on payroll, yes. if they're going to get yes. a bigger spousal benefit, why pay in? That's right, what right, because cause that, entire, oh, that entire Social Security contribution is going to give them no additional benefits at all because the, the spousal benefits are already going to exceed what they're going to have uh, a, a be able to receive under their own earnings record. Now, this is so complicated because I know, Matt, you talk about putting the spouse on payroll to contribute to the solo 401k, which could be a benefit, but really you should sure. realize it's not going to affect your Social Security in that situation. Is that a fair statement, too? I mean, because that, that... Well, Randy, what if, uh, I mean, is that... You know, some people will say, well, all right, well, I want to contribute to a 401k. Maybe I have a small business and I'm going to add my spouse on as pay- for payroll purposes. Yep. And I'm going to pay some Social Security to add them, on for, add them on to payroll so we can make some retirement plan contributions for the spouse. But doesn't that mean my spouse is building a Social Security benefit that we're going to realize some benefits for later on or not? Well, it really won't. So let Go, go back to that idea. So, if you're going to put in, uh, if you're going to put a spouse on payroll, so they have the ability to contribute to a 401k, uh, mm-hmm. or, or you know, be a part of their profit sharing plan, whatever, uh, you know, the limit on Social Security is is well over $100,000 this year. I don't know the exact number, but I think it's 118,000. Mm-hmm. So yep. that's way more than you can put into a 401k. So you could dial back the income you're going to be paying to the spouse to just get enough to get it <clears throat> into the 401k. Right, and then we we put in maybe eighteen, you know, get spouse on payroll for eighteen, but at there least you go. spouse has no other income except this spouse works in the business or or, or doesn't 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 matter. But I guess the question is, is that giving us a bigger Social Security benefit because the spouse is on payroll? We're paying into Social Security now for the spouse than if the spouse is getting no payroll at all and they're only having, you know, the primary earner getting, you know, c- contributing into payroll. Yeah, and the answer is probably not. Of course, it depends on what the primary wage earner's primary insurance benefit is going prime, to be. Okay, let's say the primary person's maxing out. Yeah, then then it's not going to provide any additional benefit, uh, Social Security benefit to the spouse because 50% of the it's called the PIA, the primary insurance amount, is going to be mm-hmm. the spousal benefit, and if that spousal benefit exceeds the earned uh, actual benefit of the other wage earner then they're going to get the primary insurance benefit, spousal benefit instead. They're going to get the higher that is, too. That's, that, now, how do you find out what it is? So say I've got a client that um, they're in their 50s, and they're thinking about doing what we're just talking about, putting the spouse on payroll, whether it's husband or wife, 
and and we want to know what that future spousal benefit could be, uh, can you go to ssa.gov and just and, and put in your info and do they spit it out, or how hard is it to get that? It, that's exactly what you do, and it's that simple. And they should do that. Everybody should do that every year for a couple reasons. One is to keep track of it, but two, to make sure that the, the payroll that you did pay in last year was credited because, heaven forbid, the government make a mistake and not report some earnings that, that you paid into the system. So you want to check that statement once a year to make sure you've been, received all the credits that you paid into. Okay, so let me try and make sure I'm clear on this because I'm trying to debunk a myth then. Because I've always had an understanding based on logic, which is obviously flawed because we're talking about tax and Social Security. Social Security, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> understanding based on logic to say, hey, spouse, and I think about this for myself and clients I've advised. Yeah, let's get the spouse a little bit of payroll. I mean, well, we want to do that for retirement contributions, but I'm always saying, and there's a little perk here. They're going to get a Social Security check because now you have two income earners that can, that can be entitled to Social Security. You're saying it doesn't work that way. Just because spouse is now working and paying into Social Security and getting a benefit for themselves, it doesn't matter if they're – because that if that benefit doesn't exceed the, spou exceed the spousal benefit that the primary has, if I understand this correctly, they're not going to get paid out for what they're – earnings were, so to speak, or whatever benefit they personally were, were earning over the years. That That's correct, that because the and Social Security is going to look at it and pay them the larger of the two, and if the spousal benefit's better than the earned benefit, they're going to get paid the spousal benefit. And what they're doing here, I can see the logic is, they're trying to reward that, and I'm, I hate to say it, this is typically the case, though, the stay-at-home mom that may have had some Social Security over her life but her, she was married to the, the husband who was the primary wage earner. So they're saying, hey, we don't want to penalize her and have her rush to the bank to pay Social Security in the last 10 years of her life. We're going to automatically calculate a spousal benefit as a derivative of the husband's benefit, and that's going to be X. And so if she wants to go see what her benefit is, fine, go check it out. But if X is greater than Y, she gets the larger of the two. So in so, so that would be the the whole purpose of this, right, Randy? Oh, we lost Randy. Are we still is still on the line. Oh, it looks like he dropped off. But I think he'll be calling right back in shortly, if not, because I know we got to hear about his event. But Matt, this is a this is a, a great yeah. little revelation here again. Um, great info. Yeah, you Good heard stuff. it here. You heard it here. Because I, you know, I, I think most people think that way. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we think, oh, let's get, you know, we have two income, two wage earners in a household, you know, husband and wife, and they're both contributing into Social Security. That means at retirement, we're going to have a bigger Social Security, you know, income from the both of us because we both paid in. But oh. it sounds like my, our logic might not be correct. Yeah, no, I like it. Well, let's do this. We would, do want Randy to come back on and tell us just how, about his um, three or four events he's having. Uh, he's been a a wonderful sponsor of ours in the past of the the Wealth Summit and other uh, KKOS events we do around the country, and so we want to highlight his uh, his upcoming events too and get him get him um, uh, get him some attendees there because we know it's going to be important info and it looks like we've got him back here. So before we jump around, Randy, you back on the line? I'm back on the line. Yeah, you just I disappeared or you disappeared. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, well, we were here. We don't know where you were, so we're gonna. <laughs> All right. Hey, I want to I want to 
I want to have one little comment, put a bow around this whole thing with Social Security, and, and, and that's, that's this. Social Security benefits, claiming strategies are like snowflakes. They, they all look the same. They're all white. But when you look at them closely, they're all individual and unique. So really, you know, we're talking in generalities here this morning, but if you're going to do this, these types of strategies, you want to make sure that you, you dig into the details, you, you look at your situation, and then have a specific evaluation done, done for you and not just take some general rule as this is how we should do it. Hey, Randy, when you said snowflake, I thought you were talking about Social Security is like a snowflake. Just by the time you get close to it, it melts and is gone. And I thought I just thought Matt was going to reference snowbirds that come down in the uh, winter into Phoenix, Arizona, and so he's like, I thought you were talking about these, you know, snowbirds. Yeah, but anyway, you could have gone a lot of ways boy, on that one there. Boy, that was I was a loaded gun right there. Okay, so still um, right, <laughs> hey Randy, real quick, tell us about your your events coming up um, and where they're at and how people can get registered. Okay, so uh, I'm going to be giving four workshops, live workshops, uh, here in Orange County at the uh, uh, Laguna Niguel uh, Senior Community Center. And uh, the workshops are an hour long. They're all about um, IRA planning. So 401Ks, IRAs, SEPs, SIMPLES, whatever. Uh, the idea of the workshop is to help people make better decisions when they're making rollovers in dealing with uh, uh uh, inherited IRAs or 401ks. It's going to cover a whole gambit of different subjects. And I have the, the workshops, by the way, are $99 to attend, but I have a big discount for all of your KKOS clients if they're interested in coming. So the discount, the discount is $80 off. So they can come in for $19.97 for the, for the workshop. Well, that's a big discount. That's a senior discount. That's like serious. That's a senior discount for any age. And and the, the code, they have to have a code when they register. It's KKOS fans, KKOS fans, and that will give them that $80 discount. Well, and, folks, if you want to go, you can get to the link uh, to register on our newsletter. It's over there on the upcoming events page uh, section. And I want to highlight that uh, this is a great time of year. If you want to get away in the next three or four weeks, jump on a Southwest flight, Come down and enjoy a weekend, or I know you're doing this midweek as well. So if you can break away and, and enjoy the the sunny weather down here, uh, catch an Angels game, uh, just uh, relax in Orange County and do a workshop and make that trip tax deductible. That would be great. So please come on. And I've been to the Laguna Senior Center. I don't want everybody yes. to think you have to be old to go to this this. Uh, workshop this is a great location it's for all ages and i i think it'd be uh, in everybody's best interest to at least consider it well thank okay, you well, yeah thanks, and Randy. The, uh, good luck you, the event. Go, thank you i appreciate that very much and in addition to the link in the newsletter if they want to go directly to the site it's smartiraplanning.com smartiraplanning.com okay and use your well, code kkos fans well, thank you so much, Randy, for that discount for our fans, and we appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the show, and a great little Social Security tip. Good stuff. All right, guys. Thanks, and keep up the good work. I appreciate being on the show, and you have good content. I listen to it every week myself. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, thank you Randy. so much. All right, guys. All right, we got some uh, tax and legal tips coming up next. Yeah, let's so, talk it out. I think we've – yeah. You want to let's uh, let's bring on Kevin. He can handle our legal tip. And uh, many of you may know Kevin is here in the Phoenix office. He resides on the 
east wing. I'm here in the west wing of the Phoenix office, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, not a big deal to be in the west wing. It's just where the president is. Um, so, uh, Joe Biden, you with us? Oh, man, yeah, Joe Biden here. Here we go. <laughs> Isn't that the east wing where the vice president's office is? Is that where he's know. at? All right. I don't know. Anyway, I'll take yeah. it. I'll take it. <laughs> What do you, what do you, want, you want to be Cheney? What do you, who do you want to be? Yeah. I don't, <laughs> no comment. I don't know. That's tough. Probably, yeah, the Regis Dreyfus, maybe that, so something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. A little beep going on. So um, what do you got for us, Kevin? I know you bring All right, guys. up every few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be brief. I got a, an appointment here in a couple minutes. Um, so this tip is just really a broad stroke, uh, more of a general overarching principle than specifics, but it's three steps to take when considering a, a self-directed IRA investment and deciding whether or not it's going to be a prohibited transaction. So I know this is Matt's right. realm, so I defer to him, but um, here we go. So number one, and I and I have this happen because I take these calls, I have these clients, but uh, number one, get a consult with an attorney before you make your investment. You know, too many times <laughs> I get a call from someone after they've already made their IRA investment and they're asking after the fact if what they did is a prohibited transaction. So call the attorney before you make the investment. Uh, maybe that's self-evident, but it happens a lot. So make that call first. So that's tip number one. Number two, you know, some of these investments using your IRA are clearly, a, you know, a prohibited transaction. Uh, and in that event, you know, we would say don't do it. Um, some investments are clearly not a prohibited transaction, and we would say, you know, if it makes sense from a dollar standpoint, go ahead and make the investment. But a lot of these uh, investments are in a gray area. You know, it's it's kind of unclear whether or not it's a prohibited transaction. You know, this is one we're in an audit. You know, you have an argument for why it's not a prohibited transaction, but the IRS has an argument for why it could be. So it's, it's a gray area. Um, and it, usually this comes up where there's some self-dealing issues. So my... My point here um, is, you know, you may be all right, you know, there's no guarantee, but if it's a gray area and you basically get a yellow light from an attorney, um, my my second tip is go back and run your numbers because I think when I've, I've talked with clients about this, you know, there may be times where even though it's kind of a gray area, if if you run the numbers and the and the the, the expected return is a slam is a slam dunk, it's a grand slam, you know, whatever you want to call it, it may make sense to proceed with caution, um, but if it's not really a good investment anyway, you run the numbers, the risk you know may outweigh the reward, and and it may not be worth uh, proceeding. Um, and then number three, and here's really what I wanted to get at, um, and if you guys have any thoughts, of course. Let's say you do get basically a yellow light from an attorney that says, hey, this is kind of a gray area. Um, and let's say you go back and run the numbers and you decide that it's still worth pursuing this investment because it's going to be potentially a grand slam for you. My third tip here is use a separate IRA for that investment. Um, and I know Matt talks about it in his book, but it's, it's sound advice for a reason. So if you don't set up a separate IRA for this, you know, investment that's kind of a gray area and it gets audited and there's a prohibited transaction, your entire IRA is going to be blown up. So um, to put some numbers, I mean, if you had an investment of $200,000 that's a little bit of a gray area, you've talked with an attorney, you've ran the numbers, you still want to move forward with it, but your IRA has $500,000, don't make that investment out of your $500,000 IRA. Instead, do a partial rollover, 
um, set up a separate IRA, and that way, worst case scenario, even if the investment is a prohibited transaction, you're not blowing up your entire IRA and those other funds are safe. So that's basically my tip for the day. So. All right, a self-directed IRA tip. Sweet. I'm just glad I'm not the only one out giving those anymore. So, um, <laughs> I hope I didn't well, step on your toes, Matt. Is that okay? I, it just oh, it comes up. So, yeah. Hey, it's not. I don't own the domain. Go for it. Love it. <laughs> well, good advice. I think um, you know, private transactions. Just so people know, that's just a a rule that dictates whom your IRA can transact with, and it's one of the most important rules. If you start self-directing your IRA to buy real estate or invest in a startup or you know, start doing some of these alternative investments. So uh, good tip there on making decisions on how to proceed with transactions. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Yeah, thanks, guys. Ex- sorry to be, sorry to be Excellent. brief. Excellent. <laughs> thanks, Kevin. No, no, no. You're all good. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a, a wonderful treat to have him on on a regular basis. That's Kevin Kennedy. He's in the Phoenix office, KOS Lawyers. If you want to reach him, it's Kevin at KKOSLawyers.com. So easy schmeasy. Um, well, Matt, we've got a, I've, I've got a number of emails here, and I, I think it's time we address some of these from our, our clients from around the country, our listeners, and uh, see if we've got a few, uh, kind of open the door on a few other concepts today. What do you say about that? Let's get it on. Let's get it going. So this is a California-based <laughs> tax question, so I'll take this one first, and then Matt will throw the next one at you. Um, this one is from Ethan, and says I, uh, he says, I have properties in Texas and set up an LLC out of state and reside in California. Uh, It appears the LLC, he says, was set up in Utah and then registered foreign in Texas because that's where the properties are. That's what we would hope is going on. And uh, I didn't foreign register my LLC in California because I don't do business in California. Uh, Ethan, yes. That's what we would all like to believe and feel. Um, the Franchise Tax Board of California doesn't feel that way. <laughs> they are a, a little more aggressive. They would say if you answered one phone call as the manager of this LLC out of Utah and Texas, you are doing business in California with that simple phone call. So that puts us in a, a quandary. Uh, some people choose the uh, strategy of being covert using out-of-state addresses and not disclosing the LLC to the state of California and are willing to fight it if they get uh, attacked or audited by the California Franchise Tax Board. There are cases every year on this, and there are little um, ways to fight it. I think it's uh, very, very aggressive. I hate this position that the California Franchise Tax Board takes. This is unique to almost any other state in the country. I'm not aware of another state in the country that requires you to pay a franchise fee and register in their state and pay this huge fee just because you answer a phone call or live in that state when you're doing no business really owning property or have employees. So uh, regrettably, it's a sunshine state problem. Um, And Ethan says, my CPA won't let me write off my home office or my mileage because I'm not registered in California. He said, in order to write this off, I have to register my LLC in California and pay the California franchise tax. He says the main reason I bought rentals was to set up an LLC to write off some of these home office expenses and mileage, but my CPA is saying makes sense, but really wondering if there's absolutely no way. Well, here's the deal, Ethan. Just because you're not registered in California doesn't mean you can't write those things off. Write them off. I mean, you've got lots of expenses, whether it's cell phone or computers or bookkeeping or legal or accounting. Um, Go ahead and write them off. 
However, it's a separate issue as to should you register in California. Um, you're, you uh, may want to consider that. Um, some people, again, like I said, get, act a little more covert. Um, some people just pony up and pay the tax. They don't want the stress or the concern that the franchise tax board will be coming after them. Uh, unless it, and there are specific rules of do you owe it or do you not, depending on if you're a manager or not and what, what some of the activities are. So look into it. It probably makes sense to register in California. Um, but you can take those write-offs whether you're registered or not. It's the separate issue of should you pay that tax or not. I mean, uh, Matt, wouldn't it be nice to live yeah. in Arizona where the filing fee is so cheap? Yeah, you know, and there's no annual fee for LLCs in California. The annual fee is zero. But um, in, 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 the, in Arizona. In Arizona, yeah, yeah. So let me just give a quick tip on that too. If I just I'll, I'll be brief. There's just a quick example I think that helps understand: Are you doing business in California or not? So um, if you're, let's say you're in your house, sitting on the toilet, talking to your property manager for your property in Texas. Okay, or let's not even say you made a phone call. Let's just say you're sitting in your home on the toilet thinking about your rental property in Texas. You've just done business in California. That is the threshold of doing business. You can't even think about it. They've set the bar so low. They want your $800 so bad that they're setting these ridiculously low standards. And um, uh, I, so that's, you know, one of the reasons I live in Arizona. I wanted to go to California, but... Man, the taxes, I just couldn't take it. But you guys got the beach. And you got the beach, so. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, yeah, that paying for that sun is, is expensive. <laughs> um, well, Matt, let me throw a question at you. This is from Joanna yeah. um, across the country. Uh, she says, I have some extra timeshare weeks deposited with RCI and trading places. I'd like to recoup money on uh, and sell them. These are weeks deposited that I need to use by a certain time, not the timeshare ownership itself. So she just wants to sell the weeks, not the actual timeshare, it appears. I'd like to advertise, say, a week in Florida that I've reserved for $800 to strangers, receive the $800, and give my reservation to whoever I sell it to. At RCI, I have to pay an extra $50 fee or something like that to have friends come to my place. Am I protected from liability if the buyers cause damage to the condos? Didn't we hit this question a couple weeks ago? I'm not sure. Did you address this? It may have been when I wasn't on the line. I don't remember this one, so I apologize. Oh, okay. You felt like you've answered this? Yeah, I I, I remember this one, but um, yeah, let's. Uh, some some of you may not be familiar with it, but let's let's uh, let's. I'll hit it quick though. Yeah, Matt, if, if you know if you know the context of that, please hit it real quick. I apologize. Yeah, that's all right. I think I I don't know if this one just came in new or something or but I thought we hit this one, but I think the the question she gets at is liability issues and it's kind of boiling down to um you know, if someone's staying at the property and they're not my friends and family per se, I've sold it, you know, and I'm making money on it, how do I protect myself? And I really think there's there's two things you gotta think about there. One is and this is a contractual issue part of the show topic today. It's a contractual issue. How are you going to limit your liability? The first thing, you're going to want to have a contract between you and whoever you sell the week to that says, hey, if you damage the property while you're there or something happens while you're there, 
you're going to cover me because I'm going to be the one on the hook to RCI or whoever I have, you know, she has this timeshare through because they're not going to go after this person that you rented it to. They're going to go after you, the timeshare owner. So you need a contract if something happens that's clear that the liability is with the person you sold that week to. And then the second thing to think about is I'm pretty sure that your contract with the timeshare company, with RCI, is going to say, if anything wrong anything happens on this property while you're here, you got to be responsible for it. So, like, you know, something breaks at the property or somebody punches a hole in the wall, what, you know, whatever happens. There's some party there. I don't know. Yeah, you're going to be on the hook for those repair costs or cleanup costs or an accident, whatever it may happen. So, um, so you're going to be contractually bound to the timeshare company. You just want that person you're selling the week to to be bound to you, have it clear contractually that they're responsible for any damages or accidents or things that occur so that you can try and collect from them if something does happen. No, great comment. And I think that opens the door while we're here. We ought to talk about, um, and we got a, a bunch more questions we'll try to uh, continue to field here uh, before the hour's up. But let's just talk about contracts for a moment. This, this was um, a topic that we wanted to cover on this show. And uh, in the future, as we, again, fine-tune our our show format will probably be taking questions uh, particular to that topic. And this is a great one because as you said, Matt, contracts are so important. And if you're going to run out this example of a timeshare week, or you're going to uh, have a lease agreement with someone or a sales contract, or this could be a subcontractor or someone working in your home or working in your business. We use contracts almost every day in our lives, but a lot of times we don't take the time to read them or uh, be involved in the crafting of them. Sometimes we feel like, well, they are, we're stuck, they are what they are. Uh, there can be poison pills and kind of crazy stuff in contracts that a lot of people don't take the time to look at. Yeah, and I think um, as we think about contracts, uh, you know, I think there's different audiences here on the call, and you may have different contracts in your business or investments, but I, I want to just give a, a quick thought on this is, if you're a small business owner, you're selling goods and services, or you're an entrepreneur, you're going to have a typical contract for your goods or services. And and I think it's really important that you figure out a nice way to make a contract that you can use for multiple customers over and over and over again. It's something you're familiar with, your employees are familiar with how it operates, and you're always using it, you're consistent with it. And you spend the time to get a contract done and reviewed, you know, really just once. Now, you might have different services or products. You might change it a little bit, but you get a good format down that works for you, that has the right terms that are going to protect you and your business. And I think that's really critical to get that key contract you use in your business down. Now, other people might be real estate investors. You're out cutting deals. And those contracts are a little more tricky because in your scenario, particularly for a lot of our real estate investors who are super creative and they're working deals or you know, those contracts can take some real special tailoring. But I think as investors get more experienced, um, you start to understand contracts yourself. You're using your lawyer to get a good basic framework, maybe drafting in specific clauses when you get weird little situations in certain agreements. Um, but I think one thing I just want to point out on this is don't think you need a lawyer to draft every contract. But get a good basic contract done. If you have a small business where you're selling goods and services, you can be confident about and then if you're out doing deals or real estate investments, whatever the case may be, 
you know, make sure you get a good understanding of what terms should be included and use attorneys to draft specific provisions or give you some basic contractual um, uh, forms that you start with in your investment. And I think that those things, two things go a long way as you're uh, running your business and you're trying to minimize, uh, excuse me, minimize your risks and, um, and get the right contracts in place. Well, and I, I think I, I, this is a really good point, and Matt, you alluded to it a couple times in your statement, and I'd like all of our listeners to really take this to heart. The person that should understand your contracts, no matter what type of business you are doing, the person that needs to understand your contracts the most is not your lawyer, it's you. The lawyer is there as a guide to help design it, maybe review it, add some provisions, Maybe once a year you sit down for an hour and look at what's going well or bad in your contracts, some problems you've occurred in the past. How could you address these better with future relationships? But knowing your contract is really up to each one of us um, in our own business. And using the, con- the lawyer is just a guide and a help meet to get us to the right contract that we should be using. And, and there's a fine line. I know some of you out there, you're not even going to use a lawyer. You're going to download nine versions off Google and then play with it and say, oh, this is good, and, and just run with it. I, there's a balance. I think it's important you at least have a lawyer review it, throw some holy water on it, make sure it's, you know, that there's not a poison pill in there because there may be something that you're missing. But, um, but again, find a balance because I don't think it's, it's acceptable to go out and spend thousands of dollars on a contract that you don't even understand. Yeah, that's, you know, you're going to be the one, good point. I mean, that's, you're the one following out the terms of that contract. You need to understand your obligations, the other party's obligations more than anyone because you're the one that's going to be held accountable to it or forcing the other party to be accountable to it. So, um, yeah, I, oh, I think oh, no. sometimes, sometimes and, and Matt, I want to tee this up for you. Let me yeah. tee this up for you. This is one of Matt Sorensen's most famous quotes. This is this is a good one. And 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 so Matt, I I don't know if you were expecting to say this today, but when it comes to contracts, I have never heard anyone say this. Or you you know the quote that I'm talking about. We didn't talk about this before the show, but this is your quote of a good deal, bad contract. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you, you mind? Can you, can you share that with our listeners? This is huge, folks. You want to write this down, put it on the mirror in your bathroom. Okay, okay, go ahead. Yeah. If you have a bad contract, you have a bad deal. Boom. Boom. That's a, it. Yeah, a good time. <laughs> what is this? A bad contract. A bad, also, you have a bad deal. Yeah, a bad contract can make a good deal bad. And uh, Very a true, good yeah. contract. Yeah, and even a good contract can't make a bad deal good, but a but True. a contract can certainly ruin a good deal. And I, I mean, I yeah, was I was we've sitting seen that at so the, many times. Oh man, I love it. And I I was sitting at the feet of Matt Sorensen when he first threw this off his lips, and it was just it was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark's gonna ask me for something after this call. I feel like I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, can uh... <laughs> no, uh, yeah, that was that was uh, that was one I when I said I was like, oh, that was that was a good one, but uh, but you know the sad thing is it's it's been reality. I've just seen that, you know, I get a client in a uh, or the real estate investment is what the where I kind of thought of that. I had a client that was a good real estate investment, and another party that they were involved in a joint venture situation, and the contract was just. 
I mean, they tried to do it themselves. Everything they talked about, they didn't put into the agreement. They just basically put in, here's how we're going to share the money and when we make it. And, and everything else in the middle of how they got to the end and when they make the money, they didn't think about it. So they got this great property, this great deal, and they're just fighting the whole time, basically squandering what would have otherwise been a, a good investment because the contract, they didn't think about who's doing what and, and what's our responsibility, what authority do we have. They just didn't get to those points. And, um, and so that was a bad contract, and it created a, a bad deal when it could have been it was otherwise, and they both agreed that it was a, uh, you know, it was a good investment, a good property. They were both could have made money on, but, but they spent their time fighting and had holding costs way longer than they should have. And, anyways, it was it was a, a bad situation. So, yeah. Well, and before we move on to our next uh, listener question, um, I. I, I do want to just say this about contracts. Some of you listening to the show may have expected, oh, they're going to tell me, do you want an attorney provision or a mediator provision or an arbitration provision or, you know, where do you put the co- you know the price and the services and all that? Again, a contract can be it can take on so many different forms and, and shapes and sizes, and it's going to be based on the parties and the and the types of businesses and all that. But I think. Uh, that one of our my biggest takeaways that I'm hoping to leave with you today is the fact that understanding what provisions you need in your situation, having it reviewed regularly, and then having it in a Word document. I love what Matt just said previously about tailoring it to the different transactions throughout the year, throughout the types of projects you're doing it, and knowing that contract in and out. Um, is really what's going to save you from heartache. And, and I want to say that this is, this is my little cliche, Matt, that I started out with today, um, and it was in the newsletter, was that um, having a contract is just not to prevent a disaster. Having a contract is to also build the foundation for everybody to have success and, and take mm-hmm. the project to a new level. It's not just prevention. It's, it's enabling. Yeah. Yeah, so. I think uh and I was just going to throw out here now if you do want some detail and I think you know there's in this short radio show and it's hard to give you some big context and get the specifics here about investments and how to or or business, you know, contracts. But I do have a couple uh articles on my site sdirahandbook.com. I have three key contract terms business owners and investors take for granted and should be in your contract contingency clause issues in real estate contracts, when to use a joint venture agreement. They're all blog articles on my website. So if you're going through this process, want to do a little bit of learning yourself, um, check out those contract um, articles, and um, they're a good resource to start building a framework and and let you know things to be thinking about as you're thinking of specific clauses to include in the contract. So I just want to give you yeah, some resources to go to. Yeah, and as you're listening to this show, hopefully you've already considered following our, our weekly newsletter that's free, filled with content of deadlines and videos and blog articles. And if you um, uh, will share at the end of the show, of course, there's always a link to, to sign up for the newsletter that you should uh, have access to with the the medium that you're listening to the show. But but um, the point is, is if you're clicking on that newsletter, you're going to be able to get right into Matt's blog every week, my blog every week, and uh, and go through the category, uh, the catalog of all those different um, articles and find the one that will help you the most. So great point, Matt. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Matt, we've got a question from Sam here. Um, and uh, I, I think this is a great question. I'll throw it your way. 
she mm-hmm. says it's Samantha. So I'm, it's, so I'm going to, you know, the, it's female doctor okay. here. So she says, right. how is it that you can form, how is it that you can form an LLC for a, a buy and hold rental income business, let's say, for the purpose mm-hmm. of asset protection and anonymity, and yet on the business cards uh, in your online advertising print medium, your name and your LLC is shown and known to all, especially on your business card. How are you protected when everyone knows who you are? and your LLC business name. Now, what are your initial thoughts to that? Well, uh, good question. A couple things. When you're thinking of asset protection for an LLC, most people aren't setting that up for anonymity. There may be some anonymity we can talk about or some privacy to it, but but the first issue of, of asset protection for an LLC is I'm setting up the LLC for asset protection, so my LLC owns the rental. That way, if something happens on the rental property, a tenant or plaintiff or whoever it may be is forced to sue the LLC. They can't sue me personally. They can only sue the LLC. They can't get to my personal assets. They can only get at the LLC's assets. So that's the primary asset protection people are seeking for in an LLC. Now, there can be a secondary benefit. Some people will use LLCs for privacy purposes to you know keep themselves private so that their name's not on the property or it's not on public records. Um, their name may be on the LLC or in there's certain situations to even keep your name private on the LLC in certain states. But if you're going for anonymity, you're not going to be creating business cards or otherwise advertising that this is your LLC. Your LLC name is really going to be on documents, deeds, contracts, bank accounts, but you're not going to be out marketing to the public that, hey, this you know ABC Investments LLC, I'm Matt Sorensen, the manager and owner of it. You're not you know you're not going to be proactively out there doing that if you're using an LLC for anonymity purposes. But again, the primary issue is that liability protection if something happens happens on the property. Exactly, and I love your comments, Matt. I can uh, I wholeheartedly agree. And and this is another one, Samantha, and for all of our listeners, um, where we've actually done a lot of. Uh, research and writing on the topic of quote unquote being invisible and privacy protection. See, there's two different things here, Samantha. There's asset protection, which the LLC absolutely provides. Then there's privacy protection that I don't want people knocking on my door at home and reaching out to me without going through the proper channels. I want some, I want to be hidden. See, hiding is not asset protection. That's privacy protection. They're two different issues. We've held shows on this. And in fact, in my new book, The Tax and Legal Playbook, this is a whole new topic that I wrote about the four stages of becoming invisible if you want to go or need to go down that route. And it, that chapter alone is just huge. A, a huge benefit to the readers. So if you haven't picked up a copy of the book, again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to, you know, shameless plug here, but what you're talking about, Samantha, this is the whole chapter in the Tax and Legal Playbook on this, and, and you would love it. Um, okay, we've got another question here. This is from Kathy. She says, um, a friend bought into a scam, uh, regrettably, using the money in his self-directed IRA. Uh, so it's not that the custodian had a problem. Uh, the custodian, and she goes on to say this isn't the problem. Uh, the scam has has been exposed, but the thief has not been yet dealt with. So my self-directed IRA money is gone. The investment is insolvent and is worth zero. But the self-directed custodian is still charging him $50 a month to maintain his account. How does mm-hmm. he show that he lost all of his money and stop the charge? Uh, if, they're in, if he writes the investment to zero, in the end, does he get and get some residual value 
How does he account for that in the future if it does pay out? Al, what do you tell someone in this situation? This is right up your alley in your book. Yeah, this is a tricky situation. It's sad, you know, there's people out there that take advantage and have these scams. But um, here's the hard part, because you're the custodian of the IRA. This is the friend, sorry. Um, The custodian of that IRA is not going to write down that account to zero unless they have some documentation and records showing that the, the investment is worthless. So, you know, they're going to want to see something that shows it's, it's worthless. The company filed bankruptcy. The person was arrested. Uh, you know, sometimes there's easy public records you can gather. If that's not available, they're generally going to want a lawyer or someone involved to try and sue them. Now, I've had clients that have had this situation arise before, and it is a little tricky. You know, it doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while this issue arises. And I think one of the things to do um, if you can't get any documentation as to it being a scam um, is to uh, have a lawyer hired to try and collect on it for the IRA's benefit. And if they're unable to collect, then write a letter saying, we took these collection efforts, the investment appears to be uncollectible, and, and state a basis for that. And if you can get a third party, typically an attorney, that tries to collect on it to say it's uncollectible and the investment's worthless, from my experience, the custodians will write down the investment to zero, and then you can close out the account. Now, obviously, the reason custodians are reluctant to write it down to zero is they don't want people to close out the account, avoid a distribution, and then receive the money personally. And that's what the IRS is concerned about and why the IRS hounds the custodians on this issue. So um, there's kind of some tax issues. They're trying to, you know, frankly, protect themselves from having the IRS angry at them um, and the IRS audit use. You know, they want some records on the investment being valued down to zero. So unfortunately, it takes paperwork. That's what custodians like. That's what the IRS likes, try and get some documentation. No, I love it. And I think... um, uh, Gosh, I don't have anything to add. Matt, you hit it perfectly. I, I was going to, every time I was ready to add something else, you, you covered it. And I think um, those are, um, uh, Kathy, your options. I, I would just add that don't feel uh, like you don't have any control. Some people feel like, oh, I've got to wait for a, a, some court to go after this person criminally before the IRA will be deemed insolvent. No, 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 no. You Like you know, like Matt said, take, take the initiative, show some true collection procedures and then have a lawyer write a letter on your behalf or get the IRA um, appraised and we help with that service too where we can go in and, and value the IRA and show that, you know, provide that documentation to us and we can package it up and look pretty to the IRA uh, custodian to get rid of it. Um, okay, now in in just um, our last minute here, I, I, I wanted to highlight some healthcare strategies. We've got a lot of questions on healthcare after the Obamacare deadline again, uh, the end of April. But I think we're going to have to dedicate a show to some healthcare topics and um, uh, in, in the next uh, few shows and create mm-hmm. an f- open forum around that topic. Be good stuff. So yeah, yeah, I love it. We're all having to deal well, with it. So yeah, let's talk. About it. Well, <laughs> yep. Go, go ahead, Matt. Well, take us out, Matt. Take us out of the show here. All right. Well. Everybody, thanks for being here today. Now, I, I'm excited for the Refresh Your Wealth show coming up. That's what we've been teasing for the last you know month or so here. But thank you for joining us on the Mark Kohler Show.
with special guest host Matt Sorensen. <laughs> and uh, tune in next week. We will be here same time. And uh, keep in mind to you can call in to listen to the show, log on through Blog Talk Radio. Obviously, the best way to catch info on upcoming shows is the newsletter, which you can sign up for at markjcolor.com, kqsweers.com, or sdirahandbook.com. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Happy Cinco de Mayo. See you next week, Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific. Thank you.